WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening, my name is Abby Newton and you are listening to Exposure. It was a big weekend for the Spartan fans. The Michigan State University football team won the Big Ten Championship and will be playing in the Rose Bowl on New Year's Day. Upon the victory, however, campus erupted with excitement, rioting, and couch burning. While some call this a tradition, police seem to think otherwise. There is currently monetary awards available for people who are willing to disclose information about the couch burnings. Now, most of the burnings took place in Cedar Village, an apartment complex on Bogue Street. Here are some of the sounds from the evening. This is just Michigan State tradition right here. You know, the college students have been lighting fires in the streets and having a good time, and we're just celebrating because we're going to California. I uh, think it's awesome that they revived a tradition of burning couches in celebration. And that's my couch that's on fire over there. Of course I love the couch fire. And special thanks to a Michigan State University student, Daniel Hamburg, who actually reported live at the event. Campus is now settling down and settling into finals week. Now tonight on Exposure, we will talk with a professor about the life and legacy of Nelson Mandela upon his death. Now also, we will delve into an interesting project having to do with a small, handwritten journal. Later, we discuss enrolling in the new healthcare marketplace. But first, let's talk about Nelson Mandela. As many may know, Nelson Mandela was a leader in South Africa who peacefully fought for democracy. Earlier in the year, I spoke with Professor Peter Alegi from the MSU Department of History about the man and his significance in South Africa and in this world. Well, Nelson Mandela is often equated with the history of South Africa, particularly the modern South Africa. And who is Nelson Mandela? Well, he's arguably one of the most important people of the 20th century. And, you know, in many ways, his life has um, been described as, you know, the classic uh, a hero's journey, a kind of almost like a quest narrative. He grew up and was born in the deep rural areas of the Transkei in the Eastern Cape, uh, the year that uh, uh, thousands of people died of the influenza uh, pandemic in uh, South Africa, like many other places around the world. That was uh, July 18th, 1918, that Mandela was born in a small ha rural hamlet uh, at Enveso. And, um, you know, he was of a minor royal stock. His father was a, was a chief. And he eventually ended up growing up uh, essentially at the feet of the king of the Tembu, the chief, paramount chief of the Tembu people, one of the main Xhosa-speaking uh, groups of the Eastern Cape. Uh, but then he became uh, a, a lawyer, a practicing lawyer, uh, one of the very first Africans to have a law firm uh, in Johannesburg at a time of uh, deep racism on the part of the white minority. He became a revolutionary, of course. Uh, but he was also a husband. And we probably got to know him internationally because he was a prisoner, a, a political prisoner, for nearly 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe the younger generations remember him mostly as a president of a democratic South Africa. Mm -hmm. And why was he a prisoner, for those who don't know? Well, Nelson Mandela uh, spent most of his life fighting for freedom and justice in South Africa. Uh, he grew up in a country that was segregationist, 
a country ruled by uh, less than 20% of the people. That was the white minority of both uh, Dutch descent, but also uh, of English-speaking stock. And uh, this minority created a system of laws uh, that uh, essentially oppressed the racial, uh, excuse me, the, the black majority through these uh, racist uh, laws. And uh, in 1948, these laws became even harsher under the system known as apartheid, which is an Afrikaans word. Uh, Afrikaans is a local language derived from Old Dutch uh, of the majority of whites in South Africa. It means apartness complete separation between people of different um, skin pigmentation, uh, an extremely um, tyrannical and oppressive uh, system. And remember, this is after World War II that apartheid mm -hmm. comes into place. You know, a massive global war has been fought against totalitarianism uh, for freedom and democracy, and the world seems to be going in that direction, and South Africa takes the opposite tack and moves towards a more rigid uh, racist system. And Mandela found himself square in the middle of this incredible uh, moment. And uh, he was part of a huge group of black uh, political activists. Um, many of them were part of the African National Congress, the leading liberation movement in South Africa. And he fought against injustice uh, for freedom and equality in South Africa. And he, he paid uh, extremely dearly for his commitment. And when he came out of jail, he was a still a prominent political figure. How does that happen where he was, you know, as some people call the world's most famous prisoner? How do you become the world's most famous prisoner? And why did people, why were they so drawn to him? That's a really good question. I think the reason people were drawn to him, both in South Africa and internationally, had to do with how much he did prior to going to prison. Mm -hmm. Right, He had already gained uh, incredible standing as a man of valor, a man of courage, a man of principle, uh, willing to stand up in the most difficult moments. Let me give you an example. Right, In 1948, apartheid uh, begins extending the segregation that already existed and making it harsher and more complete. And Nelson Mandela basically became the leader of the black political uh, movements uh, that were taking place at the time. Uh, in 1952, um, the ANC, the African National Congress, uh, together with some uh, other allies like the Indian Congress in South Africa, launched a defiance campaign, which was similar to what you saw with the civil rights movement in the United States, whereby activists started violating the segregationist laws um, in order to prove their injustice. And so, for example, in 1952, during the defiance campaign, thousands of black South Africans sat in white-only uh, sections of buses or sat in the, on the white-only benches in parks, um, you know, used whites-only toilets, and so on and so forth, essentially saying, we're not going to tolerate these racist laws. And Mandela led, he was the leader of the defiance campaign. As a result, he was arrested numerous times, and he grew in stature. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also a very prominent activist when uh, the blueprint of the liberation struggle called the Freedom Charter, a kind of almost a, a constitution in the making for a new uh, democratic South Africa, was adopted in 1955. And he was put on trial, and he was on trial for six years as a result of his role in 
coagulating this alliance of people um, arguing for one person, one vote in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, he was acquitted in that trial, and soon thereafter, of course, uh, he decided that uh, a different kind of action was necessary. He had been a nonviolent activist up until about 1960, but uh, following a massacre of 69 civilians in uh, March of 1960 at a place called Sharpville, just south of Johannesburg, uh, innocent civilians shot, many of them in the back, by the police. They were protesting uh, particularly past laws, which in South Africa were laws that required all black people to carry a document that had to be produced uh, uh, if the authorities requested it. And if your pass, so to speak, was not in order, they could arrest you. And normal people, ordinary people who had been home and maybe left their house without their jacket uh, would be criminalized, would be thrown in prison alongside murderers and rapists and, and, and ordinary criminals. And so millions of people were suffering under this terrible system. And what did Mandela say when the police slaughtered these people? Uh, at Sharpeville in March of 1960. He said the following, and I quote, nonviolence was a tactic that should be abandoned when it no longer worked. Hmm. So while he adopted Gandhian tactics, he for him, it wasn't the end all and be all, pacifism or, or nonviolence or civil disobedience. It was a tactic. And once the police started shooting men, women, and children who were unarmed, um, and many of them in the back, to him, it meant that you know, as, as he uh, uh, said, referring to uh, a Tswana language proverb in his autobiography, the attacks of the wild beast cannot be averted with only bare hands. Mm -hmm. You need to take up arms. And so Mandela became the first military commander of the spear of the nation, Umkonto Wesizwe. He became an armed guerrilla. He became uh, a terrorist, in fact, for the South African state. And mm -hmm. not many people know this, but the State Department of the United States government uh, still had Nelson Mandela on the terrorist list as late as 2008. Past his presidency. <laughs> well past his wow. presidency. Well into his retirement. <laughs> oh he was still goodness. officially a terrorist. Uh, and I think that's, that's important mm -hmm. because it says a lot about Mandela's standing both within South Africa and internationally. And you know, when he was caught in August of 1962, he was arrested by the South African police. Everyone thought this is the end of Mandela. They're going to put him on trial, they're going to have a sham trial, and they're going to hang him because he is a dangerous prisoner, dangerous uh, political activist, and now he's a prisoner, and the South African government probably wants to get rid of him. And a huge campaign uh, worldwide was started to save his life. And it was not just Mandela. There were several others on trial as well. Well, the trial started in 1963. Lots of foreign reporters were there. Uh, microphones were not allowed, no taping devices of any kind, and yet a BBC reporter managed to sneak in a tape recorder, and we do have audio of one of the most amazing political speeches of the 20th, 20th century, and that was Mandela's famous statement from the dock. Uh, he didn't testify because basically the prison, the um, uh, uh, Mandela and the other uh, people who were charged felt that this was going to be, you know, a foregone conclusion that they were going to be found guilty by by the apartheid state. And he gave this amazing speech, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of pages long, and what went on for about five hours. And he closes with with this incredible statement. This is, I think, the most important statement Mandela made before uh, he was released from prison. Here's what he said. And again, he's been standing for five hours, speaking in court with uh, um, lots and lots of people in the, in the gallery. All the attorneys are staring intently, uh, the judges as well. And here's what, he, what Mandela says. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination 
and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But, if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Wow. That's Nelson Mandela. <laughs> That's Nelson Mandela. He says, I was sure I was going to be sentenced to death. But he and he said, but he... he had this kind of, of bravery mm-hmm. um, that people admired mm-hmm. and still do to this day. Right. And then in 1994, he was elected president. Now, how did South Africans respond to his elected president? Well, coming out of 27 and a half years <laughs> uh, in prison. I guess he was in a think tank, so they really thought he knew what he was doing. <laughs> you know, he had had a long time to think about right. uh, many of the issues that were facing South Africa by mm-hmm. 1990. And there was huge celebrations everywhere, of course. I mean, by then, he was the most famous political prisoner in the world. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a fantastic celebration. I remember we were in college. Uh, I was in college at the time. And with my college classmates, you know, we had a huge party to celebrate <laughs> Mandela release but we we like many South Africans didn't know what was coming I mean after all he had just been released from prison it wasn't as if democracy had suddenly dawned mm-hmm. right and Mandela had already had secret uh, talks with the um, South African uh, regime mm-hmm. while in prison where they had hammered out some general points of agreement that laid the groundwork for what some have called the negotiated revolution And so South Africans celebrated, uh, but they also looked up to Mandela and uh, that uh, core of of mostly ANC leaders who were talking to the apartheid regime, uh, hoping that they would get um, a free and democratic South Africa very soon. Now, it took about four years between Mandela's release and the first democratic elections, and it was a difficult time. I was in South Africa uh, in 1993 when, you know, Mandela was called on on a, on a very difficult evening when basically the, the number two person in the ANC and what the, the person many people felt was going to be the successor of Mandela was assassinated in his driveway by two white supremacists. His name was Chris Hani, a really impressive uh, individual and, and wonderful human being. And he was gunned down as he picked up his Saturday newspaper on Easter Saturday. And we felt that the country was on the brink of a racial bloodbath. And nobody really knew what to do. I walked out of uh, the small house where I was staying with uh, people who I worked with, and there were military vehicles on the streets, hardly any uh, people walking on the street, which is very unusual in a South African city. Um, I was in Cape Town at the time. And that evening at about 8 p.m., Mandela came on the television. Not the president of South Africa, who at the time was uh, F.W. de Klerk, Mm. um, who Mandela would share the Nobel Peace Prize uh, with a few months later, but Mandela. Mandela came on the television, and at uh, the 8 o'clock news, he came and he gave an incredibly powerful speech, which essentially said to people, cool it, right? This is a terrible thing that has happened, but these two assassins are going to be dealt with by the justice system, um, and we have a greater uh, goal that we need to reach. And that goal, of course, was the elections. Mm -hmm. And we can't have a civil war now when (laughs) when the prize is within reach. And, you know, you really saw that evening how Mandela was already essentially the president. Mm -hmm. Um, But it would take several more months before a date would be set. Uh, But, uh, you know, we all knew who was really running the country by that time, and it was already Mandela. 
And Mandela had another, you know, he had another way of getting things done as he went to athletics. He looked into athletics to try to unite a country. How did he do that? And you studied it. I mean, you're an expert in this topic. So how exactly did Mandela take athletics to unite South Africa? That's a really interesting question that uh, goes right to the heart, really, of, of what I love to do, which is look at the social and political history of sport <laughs> in South Africa, right? Um, I think it starts with his personal love of sports. Uh, he opens his autobiography, which, if listeners out there haven't read it, pick it up, Long Walk to Freedom, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, one of the greatest books ever written. Um, he describes his childhood in terms of his stick fighting as, as, a, as a youth. Uh, this is a very popular sport still today in the rural areas of South Africa because boys are expected to herd cattle. And that's how you spend a good chunk of your days is, is herding your, uh, your father or your male relative's cattle. And you have these great fencing matches, essentially, with the other boys. And you prove your manhood. You entertain yourself. Uh, and sometimes it gets very competitive. And you might uh, have these stick fighting competitions against neighboring villages. And, and you know, the better you are, uh, the greater your social standing and your visibility. So he had this, this deep passion for sport as a very young kid. When he moved to the city, particularly to Johannesburg, he became an amateur boxer. And so while he was pursuing his political activism and he was studying law and eventually also opened a, a law firm with his friend Oliver Tambo, uh, he went in the evenings and sparred at this uh, very famous gym in what is today Soweto, the big black uh, um, town uh, outside of the main uh, then white Johannesburg. And so he was never a professional prize fighter, but he was a very good heavyweight uh, amateur boxer. Um, in school, he also ran track. Uh, he did play soccer, although in his autobiography he says he was a terrible player. <laughs> so we'll take his word for it. Um, and also when he was in prison, you know, he was not allowed to play sports because he was in a particular section of Robben Island prison the kind of South African Alcatraz for political prisoners, um, they did not allow, the authorities did not allow um, the important prisoners like Mandela and several of his comrades to play sports. Uh, he was eventually allowed in the late 70s to play tennis, uh, which he played in the courtyard outside his cell. But uh, the other prisoners on Robben Island in, in what was called the general population, they were eventually allowed um, to play soccer, and they even had prison Olympics. But Mandela was never allowed. So I think he had this um, deep love for sports, but also an understanding of how um, powerful it could be. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually, when he became president, he saw that rugby, which was the sport of the white minority, was about to host the World Cup. Uh, and he thought this is a great opportunity to get recalcitrant whites, you know, these, these more conservative whites who are not fully on board with the transition from apartheid to democracy to really embrace what is going on in South Africa. Because South Africa, as Mandela liked to say, belongs to all who live in it, black and white. And so he understood the value of sport um, culturally, but he also remembered that during the 1960s and 70s and, and into the 80s, white South Africa had been excluded from the Olympics. They had been excluded from the Soccer World Cup. This was part of the sport boycott. And so he knew that there was va political value uh, within uh, sport. And he also knew uh, that you know, sports stars were revered in South African societies, like they are in ours. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, they're much more important and valuable than politicians, right? Um, and so he 
embrace the springbok, the, the, the gazelle, the South African gazelle, as the symbol of the white rugby team at the World Cup in 1995, which is closely associated with apartheid. Mm -hmm. and, a and in the movie Invictus, Clint Eastwood's uh, movie Invictus, starring uh, uh, Matt Damon and, and Morgan Freeman as Mandela, there's a scene where uh, Mandela intervenes in a, in a meeting where um, they're getting rid of the springbok mm -hmm. emblem because it's, it's a horrible memory of the apartheid past and Mandela convinces those officials to keep it as a way to embrace more conservative whites and say you know we're with you we we will we will retain the symbol that's important to you because we want you to be part of a racially united and reconciled uh, South Africa and this is a really important moment of course in the movie but also in the real um, story because uh, those Springboks only had one player of color Chester Williams. Everyone else was white. Mm -hmm. And so this was a really generous act on the part of Mandela. And South Africa ended up winning the <laughs> World Cup, right? Mm -hmm. And so, it, like sports tend to do, you know, they convert these kinds of narratives into something almost magical. Mm -hmm. And so, for a short while, South Africa really was united across racial lines, and Mandela had a lot to do with that. Well, my last question is, what can we learn from Nelson Mandela? If you could say one thing that people can take away from this man that we, some call hero, some call president, others call Nelson Mandela, what is it? I was just listening to an interview with his archivist, uh, Vern Harris, who is a good friend of mine, and Vern said that the word that comes up to, uh, in his mind when he was posed a very similar question was endurance. Endurance. And I like that because endurance gives me the sense of a person who was always thinking in the long term, who was able to see beyond himself. We think of political leaders in a very cynical way these days. They're, they're only in it for their own personal power or for worse, for their enrichment. Uh, we, have a, you know, we tend to view um, politicians and political leaders in a very negative way, and I think there's some basis for that. But I think a lot of what happens in politics today is very short-term uh, oriented and driven by short-term goals. Mandela, at various points in his life, could have made different choices. For example, when, when he entered into secret talks with the apartheid government, the regime offered him uh, to be released if he, forced, uh, if he um, d told the ANC to end the armed struggle against apartheid. So he could have gotten a degree of freedom, shall we say, uh, for relinquishing uh, this struggle. He said, no, I'd rather remain in prison um, because at this point, you know, if we give up our arms, we'll still be living in a deeply racist and unequal society, mm -hmm. right? His thinking was long-term. One person, one vote. South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And he endured after he had already endured two decades in prison. He had fought tuberculosis. Um, you know, here he's offered the carrot of walking out of prison sort of a free man, and he turns it down. Or when uh, uh, F.W. de Klerk reveals to the world that he's going to release Mandela on February 2nd, 1990, he makes this incredible announcement, stunning everybody, pretty much. And Mandela says, oh, no, but I, I can't go out of, I can't leave prison yet. He says, we have to prepare properly for this. He has spent 27 and a half years <laughs> in prison, and he waits nine more days oh before he walks out of uh, prison uh, at Victor First Air Prison. So endurance, a man who always had, I think, 
uh, the ultimate goal in mind and pay dearly for pursuit of that. And of course, he endured great pain, personal pain. He had no family life. He spent very little time with his children and with his two wives. Um, and I, I think that's why he has enjoyed being a grandfather in his retirement so much. He spends, uh, you know, he has spent until he got very sick recently, almost all his free time with his gra grandchildren and great-grandchildren and his other relatives because he, you know, was not able to give to his family. So endurance is what comes to mind. Well, thank you very much. That's Peter talking about Nelson, Endurance Mendoza. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back. I am Abby Newton, and you are listening to Impact 89 FM. Healthcare has been a common discussion item in the past few months. As we near the end of 2013, the deadline for enrolling in the new healthcare marketplace is approaching. The nonprofit organization Get Covered America has been building awareness about healthcare for some time. Communications lead Sean Danick came to the studio to talk about healthcare enrollment. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, December 23rd is the deadline to enroll for coverage uh, that starts on January 1st. And so what the Get Covered America campaign is doing, we're on a uh, push right now that we're dubbing Coverage is Coming because coverage uh, at long last uh, is starting on January 1st. Uh, coverage that includes, is required to include the essentials, right? So doctor's visits, uh, maternity care, hospitalizations, uh, uh, routine doctor's visits, like I said, maternity care, prescription drug coverage, and more. And a lot of people are going to be eligible for financial assistance. So what we're doing is we're going out into the communities and uh, letting folks know that there are these new options and that many of them are going to be eligible for financial assistance and pointing them uh, to where they can go uh, so that they can make the best healthcare decisions for them and their families. And who is eligible to apply for this type of health care? Is it different than uh -huh. usual? Or I guess there's a confusion, mm -hmm. you know, on what exactly happens in the marketplace right. versus just in, you know, not in cyberspace. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do is just kind of clear it up and break it down yeah. for people so we can really gain that understanding. Sure. So the uninsured and the underinsured or simply those who are just looking for a better deal on their health care insurance, uh, we encourage everybody to go to healthcare.gov now that the website is 
the problems with the website are largely resolved. We've seen significant improvements, and uh, we expect that trend to continue. Um, and so everybody can go to healthcare.gov and take a look at their new healthcare options that are uh, available to them in side-by-side -side comparisons, in easy-to-read language, no fine print. And like I said, a lot of people are going to be eligible for financial assistance. And so uh, going back to the deadline, that's coming up uh, December 23rd. And so if you want coverage uh, through these, you know, to get coverage through these array of options, uh, take a look at them and enroll before Jan uh, December 23rd and coverage begins on January f on 1st. So. And I also understand that through this type of marketplace there are four um, coverage options. Could Correct. you explain each one and how they're different and how it does provide maybe more opportunity for uh, different diverse or varieties of people? Sure. Well, so yeah, there, like you said, there are there are actually uh, 13 uh, healthcare insurance companies, private, reputable healthcare insurance companies that uh, sell their product on the marketplace. Now, the marketplace isn't just the website. You can go to a navigator, um, sit down with a with a, a certified application. Uh, you know, a, it's, navigator is a uh, fancy word for uh, free professional help, mm -hmm. um, and they can help you. Guide you, guide you through the process and, and pick through these array of uh, options. And so there's bronze through platinum. Um, and as their metallic name indicates, uh, they, uh, they, you know, the bronze uh, options have a uh, lower out-of-pocket uh, expense on the front end, but the, they're going to they're, they're gonna have a higher deductible, and mm -hmm. so you're going to have a higher out-of-pocket uh, expense down the, down the line. Um, and then the platinum, obviously, then you can have, uh, you know, it's going to have very high uh, monthly premiums, but you're going to get, you know, uh, you're going to have much lower out-of-pocket expenses down the line. And so what these options essentially uh, do is it gives people uh, the opportunity to, again, go to one single portal and compare and contrast in side-by-side -side comparisons for a plan that fits their needs and their budget. Mm -hmm. And so that's why this is so exciting, and that's why we're out in the communities giving people the just the facts information they need. And speaking of you, you have a very strong passion for healthcare. Sure. And why is that? Could you go into detail and sure. explain kind of how you came into this position? Well, I've, you know, I've always been uh, passionate about healthcare reform. I think, uh, you know, everybody deserves access to healthcare insurance. Um, and I have type one diabetes, like I, you know, uh, like I've said, and um, I was locked out of the individual market under the uh, past, under the former, um, the former system. And so when I lost my healthcare insurance, when I turned 26, like many uh, college, uh, you know, age adults and and individuals just starting their career, uh, may be insured on their uh, parents' plan, but they're um, going to turn 26 soon, and they're going to have to look at their options. And so, uh, I was lucky enough to find healthcare insurance through a, a big organization, the Get Covered America organization. Um, but had I not, the new healthcare insurance marketplace would have been a vital portal for me and for many others who have profound pre-existing conditions to have access to quality, affordable health care. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's one of the big things we want to stress is that uh, no longer can anybody be denied health care insurance because they have a pre-existing condition. And no longer can, can anybody be 
denied uh, or can anybody be dropped from their health care insurance because uh, they get sick or, or get injured. And for, you know, folks that are uh, interested in, in buying uh, health care insurance now under the marketplace, uh, we encourage them to do so because, uh, you know, it's not worth not paying less than a cell phone bill, uh, you know, and then being one bankruptcy or one injury or illness away from bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the, these new options are more accessible than ever and they're more affordable than ever. And so we're encouraging everybody to take a look at them. And part of the everybody that you speak of are those right. college-age kids and Correct. are a lot of what our audience is here. Sure. And you could sense the passion in your voice, which was great. <laughs> I could just see it. And as a 26-year-old having that happen, that's scary. It's you know, scary. So why is it important to bring and shed this issue on specifically that demographic of age? Well, you know, uh, the young adults in our uh, country, young adults here in Michigan, happen to be the highest percentage of uninsured. 38% uh, of young adults are uninsured. And so, uh, you know, there's actually, contrary to uh, conventional wisdom, it's not invincibility uh, that is uh, why a lot of folks, uh, young uh, young adults are, are uninsured. It's actually affordability. And so we're going out there and saying, it's more affordable than ever now. You. When you go to the marketplace, uh, many uh, college-age students that are, you know, um, going to be graduating soon. I, I believe MSU has a winter commencement for the seniors out there. Um, you know, this is the time to to get insured and get some fin some financial help to help you pay for that. Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and is there anything else that you would like to add in lieu of Get Covered America or just healthcare in general? Well, I would encourage everybody to go to uh, getcoveredamerica.org. Uh, there's also, um, we have a hashtag, uh, hashtag <laughs> getcovered uh, is our Twitter following. We're, we're uh, very big on the uh, uh, and social media. Um, I would also encourage uh, folks to text COVERED to 877-877 to get the latest news in uh, in, in what we're doing and, and the latest news in healthcare reform. So. Excellent. Well, Sean, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it, and we uh, look forward to seeing sure. kind of how this progresses. Uh, thank you so much, Abby. It was, uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Now back to Impact Exposure. WDBM Impact 89FM, you are listening to Exposure. One of the unique things about a college campus is the wide array of religions that are present and practiced. One of our reporters was curious about religious practices at Michigan State and has a story for us today. Here is Impact's Alsha Clausen. Universities across the United States are becoming more of a cultural melting pot now than ever. In the year 2012, Michigan State University was home to students from 131 countries. How does a university such as MSU accommodate these different cultures, religions, and beliefs? Are students interested in religion at MSU? Douglas Jacobson from the Daily Beast claims that religion is making a comeback in universities today as students conduct personal explorations of meaning, purpose, value, and global diversity to achieve spirituality, not religion. And after interviewing some students, I find that this is not completely true here at MSU. 
Brittany Durham, a junior studying communication, was raised a Christian Orthodox and has changed her views slightly since coming to college, but currently has no intention of spiritual exploration. I would just say, I think as you get older, you start to see things and then you start to question your faith. I think, like I said, they should leave religion out of the politics I am for gay marriage and for equal opportunities. So I do think it's good to have a president to spread awareness about equal opportunity and for everyone to have the same rights as everyone else. Similarly, Tom O'Brien, a fellow student at MSU, keeps his political views quite separate from his religious views, specifically in terms of same-gender marriage. Thing, like everyone has their own, their own viewpoints, I'm not against it. But I'm not like outward, I'm not gonna say like I'm all for it, I guess. I'm kind of neutral. The Daily Beast also reports that Brigham Young University in Salt Lake City retains its solidly Mormon character, but it now has a room on campus designated for Muslim prayers. Here at MSU, students of the Muslim faith can travel to the nearby Islamic Center of East Lansing on Harrison Road for prayers and religious holidays. It is located close to the Lutheran and Methodist Church. An MSU economics student, Hanga Yuda, describes his experience at the Islamic Center. Most of the people that I meet at the mosque are Muslim. They're Muslim-born, okay. and they've been taught that religion if they've embodied it throughout their life ever since childhood until now. However, there are some people around me who, who go to the mosque during Jummah just to see what it's like. Because the thing about Jummah is that they do khutbah, and so then at the end, of the day, they, they basically talk about They lecture, talk about it like, you know, like, a, like a story from a religion. And so people listen to that, and they do the Friday prayer. But yeah, I mean, the majority of the people, literally I can say 98% of the people there are Muslim-born. There is also a Muslim student organization. However, few student-run religious organizations are promoted on the MSU website, as MSU is not a religiously affiliated university. A student of journalism and communication at MSU, Jen Brown, describes her curiosity of other religions. I'm very curious. I, like, I enjoy, like listening to and hearing about other people's points of view. Like, I consider myself a very like open person in terms of experiencing other cultures, so I enjoy it. Despite her openness, she is firm on her own religion. My perception of my own religion hasn't changed, but it's, um, I've got to, I, I guess, experience more of other people's religions, but like I still believe the same things I did when I came here. MSU is no exception. It is too a melting pot for students from all over the world. As a non-religiously affiliated university, MSU has been accommodating to the different religions. Muslim students have access to a praying center not too far from campus, which is also located near the University Lutheran Church and the University United Methodist Church. However, in the end, as Hanga and other MSU students describe, religion is personal. Regardless of whether MSU can sufficiently accommodate to it, if one's belief is strong, they will do what is necessary to worship on their own. Reporting for Impact News, I am Alsha Clausen. You're listening to Impact Exposure on 89 FM. Welcome back to Exposure. Again, I'm Abby Newton, and this is Impact 89FM. The Beale Botanical Gardens provide Michigan State's campus and its students with a beautiful area to study, relax, and enjoy. This year is its 140th anniversary, and I thought it'd be neat to explore the history behind the garden. I invited curator of the garden and professor of botany, Frank Talewski, into the studio to take a peek in MSU's own secret garden. 
Well, the Botanical Garden here at Michigan State University was founded by Professor Beale, uh, mm-hmm. William James Beale, back in 1873. Those are the earliest records that we can find that, you know, he starts talking about the need for a botanical garden and his curiosity with, with doing something on campus. And Professor Beale had received his advanced degree from Harvard University, studying under some of the great scientists and, and minds in biology and the sciences uh, at that point in time in the, uh, the 19th century, late 19th century, middle 19th century. And Acer Gray was one of the people he studied under. He was actually his mentor. And they had a botanical garden at Harvard. And so I'm sure that the botanic garden at Harvard was the inspiration uh, for the botanical garden here at, at Michigan State University. And he felt very important. He was very passionate, not only in research, but also in teaching. Uh, he was an innovator uh, for a new type of teaching. And that was laboratory-based teaching, observationally-based teaching. At that point in time, when he was a student, and most students were in the early Michigan State, for the first few decades of its existence, would go to lecture hall, they'd be lectured, and lo and behold, uh, that would be the whole full exposure to to life. And he said, no, you need to be a keen observer of life. You need to be a keen observer of the world around you to be really a good scientist. And so by having the botanical garden, he could take his students to the garden, or he could bring plant material from the garden into the laboratory and have those students firsthand, hands-on, look at that plant material and learn something about that plant material from becoming a keen observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the microscope uh, was sort of like the, the iPad or, or the tablet of today, uh, technology-wise. It was uh, at one time a very expensive tool used only in the best research labs, but um, increased technology and industry and production lowered the cost of it, and it became a, a laboratory bench top instrument that students could actually get their hands on and utilize. So mm-hmm. uh, he took advantage of that in, in terms of his teachings and setting up a laboratory-type environment for students to learn. Mm-hmm. So in his passion in developing the garden kind of answered the rest of your question. Uh, in terms of seeds, uh, being an agricultural college and Working with many farmers in the state and, and around the region, uh, Professor Beale would attend uh, farmer institutes, as they called them. And this would be an area where Michigan State uh, College, at that time, Michigan State Agricultural College, our professors would go and, and, and talk to and address farmers in terms of how to, to make a better living off of the land, how to increase their yield and their productivity. And at the same time, the farmers would come to the professors at these meetings and say, I've got a problem. I've got a question. Can you help me resolve this? And Mm -hmm. and actually, this is really the genesis of our extension, our cooperative extension experiment station concept that we have as a land-grant institution. And, of course, Michigan State is the first Mm land-grant institution in the United States. And so one of the things that came up was how do we control weeds at that point in time, we didn't have Roundup, we didn't have 2,4-D, you know, herbicide was an unknown, nobody knew what a herbicide was. And, and really, the only way to control weeds in your farm fields was through cultivation. And you may have heard the term, that's a long road to hoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and really, what that refers to is that, you know, a farmer who'd be out there on a summer's day with his hoe or with his, his field workers would have to, to hoe to mechanically cultivate to get all the weeds out. And that was, that was a lot of work. Was all, you know, so that the term is a long road to hoe, meaning that that's a lot of work. It's going to take you a lot of time to do that. came from that, that era. And what's very interesting is that Beale took this question to heart. And so he set up this experiment in 1879 where he selected 25 different species of some of our more common weedy plants. Mm-hmm. And some were not weedy. He actually had some tree species that he looked at, um, planted outside the bottles and, or put inside the bottles. He actually put uh, white cedar 
uh, seeds in the bottles uh, as one of the few tree species that he actually tried to study. But the concept and the idea was how long can a seed remain viable in the soil under natural or as near natural as possible conditions? Mm -hmm. That would be a controlled experiment. And so he selected 25 bottles and um, he selected 20 species of plants and he counted out 50 seeds of each one of those species of plants and he put those into a sand mix and filled each of the bottles with that sand and he buried those bottles here on campus uh, with the intent that every five years he would excavate a bottle, shake the sandy soil out and see what would germinate. Mm. And of course he was thinking very far ahead because at five years and 25 years, that's a long period of time, much longer than he was going to be around. So he definitely, he <laughs> definitely intended the experiment to be continued mm -hmm. uh, after his departure. And so Professor Beale retired in 1910, um, and he had turned the experiment over to Professor Darlington. And Professor Darlington, who was his replacement as director of the Botanical Gardens and also of the, of the MSU Herbarium as a faculty member in the Department of Botany, continued this experiment. And after a period of time, Professor Darlington began to realize, well, some of these seeds seem to be pretty consistent. We've kind of plateaued, we've kind of leveled off, and so on. Why don't we, why don't we extend this experiment instead of every five years? Let's make it every 10 years, and then mm -hmm. we can actually make this experiment go even longer. And so I think it was the 1930, if I remember correctly, year uh, that he decided to extend it okay. to, you know, to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then when Professor Darlington retired, he had passed the experiment on to Professor Bandersky, uh, and Professor Bandersky uh, in the, uh, the uh, botany department continued the experiment uh, on a 10-year basis until 1980. And then in 1980, it was the 100th anniversary. And so the decision to be made was, well, we're still seeing pretty much the same things germinate. What if we extend the period to every 20 years? And so the, the department voted under the direction of the department chair, uh, and they all agreed to move the period to, to every 20 years. Well, in 1980, I was a graduate student in college studying <laughs> plant physiology and, of course, had heard about the Beale Seed Experiment. It's a quite well-known experiment, certainly amongst plant physiologists and ecologists. If you had said to me, you're going to be the next person to excavate a bottle, <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. So in the year 2000, when I was included on the team with Dr. Mm -hmm. uh, Jan Zavart, to excavate the 120th year bottle wow. uh, and shake the seeds out and see what would germinate. It was just, you know, a, you know, one of those high points in one's career to be mm -hmm. involved in such a, a well-documented uh, experiment and the longest continuously running experiment in the world today uh, that we actually have data uh, going back for over 100 years. And when we shook the seeds out, uh, we had almost uh, just a little bit under 50% germination for the moth mullen. Uh, the moth mullen has a, is, is kind of a weedy plant. Um, it's a European species, native, uh, but it's, it's something that we find growing in, in a lot of areas around here, around the United States. Beautiful yellow flowers. Some have a little white flower. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the logo for the Beale Botanical Garden today, we have our 140th anniversary this year. And so we have some banners up on North Campus mm -hmm. uh, announcing the fact that it's our 140th. And that little logo on there, that little yellow flower, is the moth mullen. And we chose the moth mullen. Uh, because it's such a, a persistent plant. Mm -hmm. uh, it shows longevity. It's from Beale's experiment. It's one of the plants he chose. And after being buried in the ground for 120 years, uh, we're still seeing almost a 50% germination rate. So it's, it's, it's robust. And that's what we like to think of Beale's contribution to science and the Beale Botanical Garden is that longevity, mm -hmm. robust, sound, uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful metaphor for the garden. 
I think what it stands for, you know, the Beale Botanical Garden almost see or seems as if it's his way of continuing that experiment, just like you were talking about, continuing that knowledge and that learning about the world around us. And so I think it's neat how that kind of stands for that itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he saw the Beale Botanical Garden as being a living laboratory, mm-hmm. as he referred to it in his own words. And the Beale Botanical Garden is a living laboratory today. So again, when you think about the garden, you know, like you opened up with, you mentioned how how beautiful the garden is, what a beautiful space. It's a wonderful space to stroll through, to contemplate, to rest, to read a book, to have your lunch, to go on a first date, to go on a second date, <laughs> uh, you know, to get married, to get engaged. Uh, I had a wonderful opportunity the, uh, last year uh, down by the pond talking with my staff, and there was a young man and a young woman on the other side of the pond, and, you know, we kind of looked over and said, you yeah, know, this is interesting. I think I might know what's going to happen. And before you knew it, he's on his knee. Oh, and she, I've never seen a, a happier couple. <laughs> I mean, it was just absolutely wonderful. Uh, but, you know, people, people really enjoy the garden mm-hmm. for that space. But more than just a space, more than just a pretty place, the Beale Garden is a living laboratory, a living classroom. And we have uh, thousands of students every year that utilize the garden in, in their teaching and in their research. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, the fiscal year of um, uh, 2013, we actually have... Uh, $10 million, over $10 million worth of sponsored research projects that are utilizing plants from the Beale Botanical Garden and or the Campus Arboretum. The whole campus is an arboretum, which I have a database for and we've inventoried the plants on. We're very proud of that because, again, it shows that, you know, our commitment to support Michigan State. You know, the president talks about Boulder by design, and, and we definitely believe in that, embrace that concept, and supporting research, supporting teaching, supporting outreach, supporting all the missions that Michigan State stands for, Mm -hmm. and what Beale foresaw the garden to be, and what the garden should be. And so we are very proud to do that. We actually conduct our own research, like the Beale Seed Experiment. I conduct studies based on on plant material that are in the gardens and on the campus, and publish that. So it's a a whole variety of things that that we are doing with the garden that supports the MSU mission. Well, Professor Tuluski, thank you so much for your time. I think we got a little taste on what the garden has to offer more than just its beauty, but I think to really experience the learning laboratory and its beauty, people might just have to go there themselves. Absolutely, and it's beautiful any time of the year. Mm-hmm. So even on a snowy day like today, <laughs> uh, it's a little protected from the wind, but you can really enjoy the uh, the flower, you know, the, the the leftover flowers and the trees and covered in snow. It's absolutely beautiful. You're headed there next for a nap, aren't you? Isn't that what you said? <laughs> just kidding. Maybe. <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you so much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Welcome back. You are listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I'm Abby Newton. In January 2012, Lansing resident Callan Abraham bought a journal. He wrote in the journal for seven days and then gave it to a friend. Now, the journal went from person to person for about a year. Each person was assigned to write in the journal for seven days, and when Khaled got it back, he was amazed at the degree of openness people felt when writing in the journal. Khaled is here today with us to talk about how the simple project became a liberating experience. I grew up in Pakistan, and um, your handwriting and writing letters is the, was a big part of my upbringing. Like, we kind of had to do it as kids. We wrote letters to all our friends, and I still write letters all the time to some of my friends all over the world. And... As I was getting older and as we're getting more ingrained in like social media and email, using email as a mode of communication, I was realizing that we're all getting away from it. Even I was getting away from it. So um, 
I had this journal, and I thought it would be kind of like a letter, but uh, more in-depth and more personal. And it started off with just that, just that idea. So I took this journal, and I wrote in it for seven days as if it was my own, my own journal. And I wrote some very general instructions on the front page, and I passed it on to a friend and uh, asked uh, that they pass on after seven days and just kind of keep doing that. And everyone who received the journal received with su such passion. They were really excited about it. And people poured their heart on it. Like some people wrote very personal things, even though they knew it was going to be shared. But there's something about sitting in, on a desk or on your bed or wherever, at a coffee shop, uh, wherever, whatever is comfortable to you with a paper and a pen. Um, and I think that it just, I, like, like feelings just flow out. And when I got this journal back about a year and a half later, I was blown away that it worked. Like it worked exactly, or much beyond what I expected. Um, so that's, th so this event, um, people who were, had written in the journal um, have been wanting to see the final thing because the third person never saw what, who wrote after them and how they wrote it or whatever. So it's going to be a time for everyone to kind of come together and like see what happened with this one book. And you know, I was holding it yesterday and I realized that this journal has uh, so many people have had like a very special connection to it, like to one thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not like no one really owns it. It's like a community journal. Um, so at the end of this event, we're going to start three more journals and um, at the event, we're going to reveal exactly where they're going, but okay. we have some cool ideas. Wow. So. And for you, what did it feel like spending that week with that journal and almost, you know, it acts like a person who you're talking yeah. to each night and you're, yeah. you know, releasing something within yourself. So what did that feel like personally to you? Um, you know, um, so when I had the journal, it was full of blank pages mm -hmm. and it was a blank cover. Now it's a painted page. Uh, someone painted it, and there's uh, stickers all over it, and there's like it just, it just the seam is like coming apart because it's so full. Um, so when I wrote it, and I, uh, I don't know, it was an incredible feeling, like uh, it was the beginning of something cool. But you know, uh, with anything like this, with anything creative like this, when you're giving it away, you have to surrender a lot of control. Like I couldn't control who it went to after. I couldn't control if someone just threw it in the garbage. I couldn't control if someone like liked it so much that they kept it, but um, I had this, like I was kind of giving away this really special thing, and that was uh, that was a cool feeling, yeah. And mm -hmm. that's what I thought at that time. And then, so. do people read the entries before them? Yeah, so people are welcome to put their own name in it, or they're welcome to make it anonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, almost everyone left their name in this one, and uh, they're welcome to read the past ones, and you know. Um, so yeah, people read it, and okay. you know that that's what kind of built uh, traction for the project because mm -hmm. they were like, you know, I would get emails back from people when they got it just so I knew where it was, and people would include like a little snippets of how incredible things are, and like you know it. I've been excited. I didn't get to see it for a year, and I this whole time I was just waiting anxiously. So wow. it was incredible. Yeah. Why do you feel like people have this comfort of writing their feelings and ah. you know really unleashing themselves in a book, whereas sometimes we're not comfortable talking one on one with people, even though in your project they might have known that other people would be reading this. Yeah, that that's a great question, and you know, um, one of my friend, one of my really good friends, uh, was amongst the last couple of people to write in it. And he had a really good observation. We, we, him and I know some of the people that wrote in it. Just, uh, you know, kind of went around mm -hmm. circles that, you know, groups of friends that we know. 
And uh, he was talking about how at parties we've met a lot of the people that were in this journal. And in a social setting, you never really have that kind of a heart to heart. And I, um, I was a little annoyed. I'm like, I feel like I knew these people, but like, I wish I knew them at this, this level of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know, I think that um, you have uh, a mode of communication while being in a very comfortable space. And I think both those things together result in just a more direct connection to your thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and so. for you, do you feel like doing this exercise mm -hmm. has changed how you communicate with people one-on-one -on -one or with people in a social setting? Um, yeah, I think that uh, since the journal, I have started doing a lot more smaller social gatherings mm -hmm. than bigger ones. Okay. Than bigger ones, and it's kind of my nature to kind of invite everyone to things <laughs> and like you know, because uh, I just want I, I I love introducing one group of friends to another group, and I love like what that does, and I love how you can have a social setting, you can add another person, and how it changes the whole dynamic, and I love that experiment, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, but it's really rewarding to just kind of do what we're doing right here you know just uh you and me just talking about ideas talking mm -hmm. about thoughts and i think it's uh something changes when mm -hmm. it's more intimate like that so and what do you hope people take away from you know this exercise and as well as kind of the event itself yeah um it's gonna be an interesting event and um we haven't revealed a lot of the details. Like mm -hmm. you got this little invite <laughs> and it has like three lines on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's about, that's kind of how, that's what everyone knows about it. But I hope that this event kind of slows things down and gets people to talk a little bit more. Um, and at the door, we're going to have a little basket and a little sign that's going to ask people to leave their cell phones and iPads there. Oh, and um, so you're going to enter the event without these things that we're so connected to and we always go to when we are bored or whatever mm -hmm. and hopefully people won't be bored <laughs> I don't and think so. um there's going to be music and there's going to be food and then when we reveal the journal everyone's gonna be sitting in these pods and hopefully that results in good discussion and uh maybe more of those heart to hearts mm -hmm. so absolutely um and again this event is on december 12th at 7 30 p.m at scene metro space and then lastly um how excited are you for this event i know you can hear the passion in your voice <laughs> yeah, but i want thanks. i want you to be able to vocalize this. um i am beyond excited especially <laughs> because of like the buy-in so many people have had you know uh um, Redhead Design has done all the design for it and i um, incredibly thankful to them. There's food from uh, Red Haven. There's this, one of my favorite local bands, uh, the Whiskey Pickers are playing at the beginning. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, I've been blown away by all the love from everyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's going to be great. That reveal is going to be awesome. That's great. So. Well, you inspired me yesterday. I just bought a journal. So I'm ready oh, for 2014 <laughs> to be journaling awesome. and figure out what I want to do. So Cool. Thank yes. you. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. And again, Khaled is hosting an event to celebrate the journal and talk about its impact this Thursday at 7.30 at Scene Metro Space in Lansing. Now next week, we will be devoting the entire exposure episode to capturing the personality, experiences, and emotions alive within Khaled's journal. Be sure to tune in. For now... That's all we have here in Exposure. Now, thank you for tuning in this evening. We wish all the students best of luck on finals this week and safe travels home next week. For the rest of you out there, stay warm. Now, special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton for Exposure on Impact 89FM.
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.